for you know folks in the Web3 space, I would think about what part of the creator journey are you building for? Is it related to building community? Is it related to creativity? Is it related to monetization and figuring out ways that you can make creators' lives a lot easier? Because ultimately, at the end of the day, we don't have a lot of time and people are only going to remember one, max two things about what you have to offer. Hey everyone, this is Lee back with another episode of Means of Creation. So as you guys may have noticed, we took a long break from the show for the past few months, almost a year. A lot has happened in our lives for the past year. Nathan had a baby. Congrats, Nathan. I've been continuing to invest in crypto, which has been a roller coaster, as you guys have seen over the last year or so. And all of this time off has given us the space to really reflect and think about where we want to take this show in the future, what topics we want to be known for, what kind of guests we want to bring on, what we're both personally interested in. And so I'm actually going to be trying something new with this show going forward, which is that I'm going to be hosting it by myself, inviting on folks who I think are doing really interesting things that are adjacent to crypto and pertain to the future of online work and the creator economy that I think could hold a lot of learnings for all types of founders and builders. And it's very often the case that I have conversations or catch-ups with interesting people or friends of mine where I pause and think, I wonder if other people might like to be a fly on the wall for this conversation. And today's episode was really born out of one of those catch-up conversations with one of my friends. Paul Marvucic, who is the global head of product marketing at TikTok. So Paul is responsible for leading and managing a team of product marketers, launching global campaigns, inspiring creators and consumers to create on TikTok's platform. He also helped to launch the TikTok Creator Fund in 2020, which pays out creators for creating content on the platform. I call it the Creator Fund that launched a thousand ships or a thousand creator funds across social media. And prior to that, he was at YouTube, where he also worked on their creator programs, including the Play Button Awards. So it's safe to say that he's really an expert on all things related to building for creators, incentivizing creators, how to be viewed as a creator-friendly platform, ways to expand into new segments of creators, etc. And I really hope that you guys enjoyed this episode. I think it's really timely. TikTok has been in the news for not exactly all of the most positive reasons recently, but I really think that it's pioneered a lot in the creator economy. So anyways, I hope you guys enjoy the show. Let me know what you think. Let me know what types of guests or topics you'd like me to cover in the future. Today, I'm here with one of my good friends, Paul Marvucic, who is currently the head of product marketing at TikTok. I really know Paul as like my friend who I go to when I have any sort of creator product-related questions or creator marketing questions. He's really like a fount of all things creator-related wisdom, but he has a ton of other experience beyond that, which I'll let him describe a little bit more. So Paul, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, of course. I feel like this is long overdue. We first met in my creator economy course I think almost two years ago. And when I saw your application coming through, I was like, oh, I think this person can probably teach this course. 
rather than me teaching him anything. And that's because I saw all of your amazing experience from TikTok and previously from YouTube, et cetera. But actually, before we dive in, why don't you just say a little bit more about your current role and responsibility at TikTok, as well as what you were doing before that? Awesome. Well, you know, we can talk about what a refund might look like two years later. Uh, too one. late. Well, thanks so much for having me. Like I said, I'm really excited to talk to you today about all those topics and, and creator marketing in, in general as a discipline. Right now, I'm head of product marketing for two different verticals at TikTok, mostly focused on all of the features that we put out to enable creativity of all different types and to allow anyone to be a creator, as well as all of our creator monetization offerings. Before TikTok, I worked at YouTube in creator marketing, specifically focused on different types of initiatives that rewarded creators, which included the Creator Awards Program, also known as the Play Button Program, and launching features that allowed advertisers to be creators. And I actually sort of started my career as a creator editing the West Wing Week, which was a more or less glorified travel vlog for the Obama White House YouTube channel. And you can find me on TikTok at Pistol Paul, where I sort of share humorous insights on working culture and life. You're not just a creator expert, you're a creator yourself with a pretty large following on TikTok, right? Yeah, I think that's one of the things that I always give advice to people when they ask, how can I make my product better? How can we serve creators better? And I, I say, use the product. So this is just me living that mantra and putting myself in the shoes of the creators that we serve every day. Yeah, I love that. Although I do it much less effectively on TikTok than you do. I think I've just crossed 400 followers. I'm really excited for your budding ski TikTok <laughs> career. So I need to go to South America soon to be able to continue my genre of ski TikToks. Otherwise, I need to pivot to another topic over the summer. I mean, um, I think there's a big off-season training schedule <laughs> that we're all waiting to see from you to see how you're prepping for the next season. So thank you. Thank you for the words of encouragement. But enough about me. Anyway, so all of your experiences are so fascinating. I think they touch a lot of products and applications that we probably all have familiarity with as consumer users, but we haven't really gotten the inside scoop on what motivated them, what their goals are, how you measure success and things like that. And there's a lot of folks who listen to this podcast who work with creators. They're founders building for creators or product managers who are building features to attract and retain creators. And so I think we'll have a lot to talk about to unpack the lessons that you've learned over the years. But first, I wanted to start with TikTok. TikTok has obviously grown to a size and scale that was hard to imagine just a few years ago. I think it has about 100 million users in the US with users spending 95 minutes a day in the app that compares to about 30 minutes a day for Instagram per user or 35 minutes per day for Facebook, 45 minutes a day for YouTube. So obviously it's found a lot of success in creating this very retentive, engaged user base. And I would love to hear your thoughts on what catalyzed TikTok success in the US. It was at a moment where a lot of VCs felt like consumer social had been sort of played out and was won. Was it its creator approach or what would you attribute it to? Well, I think if you're interested in learning about the genesis of TikTok in general, I would recommend your listeners or watchers to listen to Alex Zhu's interview that he did a few years ago. I think it was at TechCrunch, one of the, mm -hmm. their conferences several years ago. He goes into detail around 
how TikTok and how Musical.ly got started in terms of their approach to attracting creators and the different mental models and kind of principles they had at that time when they were kicking off the platform that eventually turned into TikTok. And then he'll do a much better job of explaining it than me summarizing it. But one of the key tenets that is really important about TikTok today that was important three years ago before the pandemic and even at the genesis of the company is this intense focus on product and building out easy to use creativity tools. One of the things that I always talk about when people ask me about what makes TikTok so special is it combines not only one of the most powerful recommendation systems that we have in the world, and we can talk about that later on, with ease of use. That part is often forgotten about. People often mm -hmm. talk about, oh, well, there's the algorithm. It's an amazing product. And, and that's certainly the topic of a lot of the discussions in terms of different platform strengths. It comes down to how well can you serve your users and their interests? but also how easy is it for people to create on the platform? And I think that focus is there to this day, which is easy to yeah. use creativity tools, easy to use camera features, effects, editing. I don't know if my mom can make a video on TikTok, but she probably get pretty close. She's 70 years old. So just to give you an idea of the gap that existed in the market at the time was to get started on other platforms, you're really talking about buying a camera, buying editing software, and obviously the advent of the iPhone and smartphones has made something like TikTok a lot easier to exist. But I think it's really been that focus on how can we make it as easy as possible for anyone to create. Having that focus on that end user, which is actually just Joe on the street, not a creator. One of the things that TikTok has always done is, is had a really big focus on user research. There are stories from years ago where Alex and some of the other founding team would come to a new city and they would just talk to people on the street. What founders today that you know of in the ecosystem are just out on the street asking people questions? Maybe some, I don't, I don't know every founder under the sun, but that sort of dedication to user insights and to, mm -hmm. to thinking about who our end user is has served the product immensely to this day. And that focus continues to exist. And if you look at where TikTok is going, some of the things they've announced recently, for example, I'll highlight the Effects House platform, which allows people to create AR effects on the platform, has spawned a whole new type of AR creator. There are sound creators, people who make the really popular sounds on the platform are a genre of creator in their own right, and they're allowed to express themselves on the platform. So I think we'll continue to see kind of diversification in those different types of creators based on the tools that we offer. And really the tools that TikTok offers are a reflection of the users. And, and what I mean by that is often the users are the roadmap. Duet and Stitch are two really good features that we all are familiar with today that actually started as behaviors that users were doing. And TikTok looked at it and said, let's just build this as a feature. People are already doing it. So it's about putting the tools in the hands of the users seeing right. where it goes and then implementing that and iterating that rapidly is, has been a really big part of the product piece. Yeah, that's so interesting. So essentially, like it's taken this very product driven lens to serving creators and building the best tools that would attract creators and propel that kind of creation engagement flywheel and product loop. I think a lot of founders that I've met over the years who are building for creators take this very product-centric approach maybe to its extreme, which is that they build something and then they expect creators to come and use it. And like maybe that does happen later on once you've reached scale, where if you build something and you put it in the Instagram app, yeah, people are going to use it. But at the early stages, that's not the only 
lever to pull. So yeah, I'd love to hear your thoughts on like, what are some of the other strategies to attract creators or incentivize creators to use and give a new product a shot beyond product itself? I think one of the things that often is overlooked as well is this concept of building for a specific niche. Lots of folks want to go out there and say, hey, we're for everyone or we want to be for everyone. But there's a lot of steps between where you are on day zero and where you want to get to, which is maybe your mom using the platform that you build or something. And if you look at TikTok early on, one of the areas that they really focused on was youth and youth culture. They had this insight that and that we all know, which is a culture is really built by young people, by teenagers, by people in college and universities, right? Like remember Snapchat's explosion and, and relevance with youth to this day with right. university audiences and high school audiences, because that's where culture moves forward. So they focused on youth. And then also there is a focus on specific niches or not even niches, genres within the space they were operating, which is an entertainment focus. For a very long time and to this day, lots of people know of TikTok as a dance and lip sync app. Well, if you think about what dance and lip sync is, it's actually one of the most accessible, accessible forms of communication in the world. Dance is language without speaking. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Lip sync. Who hasn't sang along to their favorite song and recorded themselves at some period in, in time now at this point in the world? And so I think there was a really big emphasis on building out features that support ease of expression that can allow anyone to get involved. That's where you saw memes and kind of trend content start to become a thing. And that sort of fourth wall being broken down with TikTok and putting the user experience into the homepage in the same way that Snap, you open up onto the camera. That's a really deliberate choice by the product team and by the business to say, hey, this is the primary experience on the platform. In that same way, the little disco kind of wheel for audio on TikTok is a really big part of the experience because we're inviting you to come in and express yourself and take your play on whatever trend is happening. I think everyone at some point in 2020 did the blinding lights challenge, right? With whoever was around them during the pandemic. And so I think there is that piece of community expression that was really propelled by the product. But then also, I think one of the reasons why I had joined and, and when I was looking for a new opportunity was the focus on kind of a human touch on the platform. TikTok has invested in lots of different programming, community events, activations, one-on-one -on -one relationships with creators that really can send the perception of the platform over the edge versus other platforms. If you just put that human touch, at the end of the day, it is a relationship business, right? Mm -hmm. I'm speaking to you from Los Angeles, the center of world yeah. capital of entertainment. And it's a very, very much in-person relationship that I think is something that is forgotten about when you think about, oh, well, we're building a product. People will just come for the product. You have to find ways where you can put that totally. human touch onto the platform so you can stand out from the rest of the pack. Yeah. Can you say a little bit more about those human-driven programs and what it looks like to do those community activations or one-on-one -on -one relationships? Like, how are those structured? How do you think about your goals in engaging in those kinds of programs? I think ultimately, in the same way that when you're building products for creators within an organization, you need to have a really good sense of what the business strategy is and how it links to the programs that you're building. One of the key areas where you can read the news and you can see so-and-so platform has launched this new program to attract this type of creators. One of the things I'm always worried about is, well, what's happening on the inside? 
how are they actually measuring that and tying that back to what the platform's North Star metrics are, right? At the end of the day, these are very oftentimes product and engineering driven cultures. And so the challenge that marketers have or program managers or folks in the content and business organizations will have at these platforms is a lack of understanding or lack of resourcing around measurement for the types of programs that they want to build. And so one of the challenges that I see often within my job, if I look at the industry at large, is how long is that program or idea going to last? Does it have staying power? And a lot of times that comes down to the way that it's being measured internally. And, and there really needs to be an investment in measurement solutions so that you can ensure the longevity of something that's being launched. It's the same way if you look at companies that launch different initiatives or experiments, doesn't matter what type of company, but there are people who are listening to this podcast, I'm sure, who are working in an experimental arm or experimental part of a company. And oftentimes those experiments don't last because, well, they're not driving DAU or they're not helping drive the specific retention metric that the entire business is focused on. So I would encourage practitioners to really think deeply about ways that they can start from the North Star metric and figure out ways that that can translate or waterfall down to what they're working on. Otherwise, it's going to be hard for these things to last. And I'm referring to things like creator ambassador programs, specific cohort programs where we say, hey, we want more gaming creators. Let's launch a fund for gaming creators. Or, hey, we want more diverse creators on the platform. Let's launch a accelerator program to help upskill certain identity groups and also to showcase to them that we really want them and we really value their presence on the platform. So we're going to make a concerted effort to attract these creators. There's a lot of really good will and intention with these types of programs, events as well. How do you measure an event? NPS, there's some other things out there, but really there has to be a philosophy and buy-in at the senior executive level that this is the right thing for us to do and to show up at these different types of opportunities or spaces because we are in a kind of people-centric business. How do you evaluate relationships? How do you measure trust? There are different ways to do that, but it is very difficult. And a lot of times in these organizations, the teams working on these topics and programs don't have that kind of resourcing. So it is a challenge. Yeah. When TikTok has historically tried to break into some of these new communities, like, for instance, getting more gaming creators or getting more diverse creators, et cetera, what have been your learnings or reflections on what has worked well or what has not worked well in attracting those new pockets and new communities to the platform? One of the most important things to understand internally when you're thinking about how to attract a specific segment or new category of creators onto the platform is making sure the entire business is aligned to this initiative. What I mean by that is different departments who are working on everything from product to content to community management to marketing are all bought in and are all actually providing a holistic view on what it will take from the organization as a whole in order to provide a quality user experience, in order to attract people onto the platform. If you launch a marketing program attracting, let's use this gaming creator example, and there's no buy-in from the product team, and we invite all these gaming creators in, and they start saying, Where's these, where are these advanced live streaming features that we'd like to have? Mm-hmm. Where, where are these features where I can start to interact with my audience? Where's my group chat? You know, There are certain expectations that different creator audiences also might bring to the product based on what is existing in the ecosystem. And for example, not including the product team would be a really huge mistake. 
because yeah. they're just going to give you feedback that says, hey, we don't want this. At the same time, sometimes platforms know that they need a signal from the market. And this is also, there's a lot of value in doing something like this to get those signals and to understand, oh, here's what we need to build and include in the roadmap based on the information we've received and the feedback we got from creators. You also don't need to launch a program, obviously, to learn that. And that's another thing that's really important is to actually have different ways for you to stay in touch with creators and from a wide variety of backgrounds on a regular basis, whether that's through focus groups and research and UX teams, whether that's through longitudinal trackers that different organizations have set up. I also encourage everyone to have their own one-on-one relationships with creators. You don't need to be an agent in Hollywood to have relationships with creators. You can go and reach out to your favorite creator, check with your PR team, and say, hey, I want to talk to you. I work on this product. We want to get some information. And I'd love to hear about ways that you think you can make our platform better. And certainly if you're at a a much smaller organization or if you're at a startup, the world is your oyster. And so I really encourage folks to reach out because people forget that creators are just, they're power users, but they have some of the most amazing insights about what you can do to make your platform better. And a lot of people just don't listen. And it's really easy to watch a YouTube video, see what other folks are saying, But until you actually sit down with someone and speak to them and do the research, you're only getting a tenth of the of the picture. So I I really encourage folks to speak with and and build alliances with creators. Yeah, I think those are great points, especially around like the holistic approach to growing different segments of creators. It's not just a marketing effort. It's marketing with product, with like business teams to create that holistic experience such that you can take creators from the top of the funnel to actually then wanting organically to use your product because it's built for them. And then, yeah, I agree. I think like a lot of the best founders and products that I've seen being built for creators that have grown well have been helmed by or staffed by teams that are creators themselves or are deeply entrenched in those networks where they are on the ground talking to their own users and prospective creators all the time to really deeply understand their needs and also to build that like human relationship and empathy. Because when a creator is thinking about, do I use like product A or product B? It oftentimes is a human decision. It's like, well, I like this founder. I'd like to help him. So let me try out this new product. Like that's actually a calculus that goes through their mind. So I think that human element can't be understated. The other thing I'll jump in and say is the creator ecosystem is very small. And so your reputation really matters. And everyone Mm -hmm. talks about everything, which is great. We need more transparency around all aspects of what it's like to be a creator from platforms, all the work that you're doing, for example, to bring to life the opportunities and also the challenges facing the creator ecosystem is amazing. And so people forget about that. And so you have to act with integrity. You have to act with view on the long term. And those are the companies and the people that I think are going to have lasting power in this industry, because while it is a new industry, it's not going anywhere. Right. I hope that it's around for a very long time. And so it's really important to build a brand, build your reputation and be well known because everyone is always talking to each other. And so your reputation really matters. Yeah, definitely. I want to switch gears and talk a little bit about monetary incentives to attract creators. So a few years ago, TikTok announced the creator fund. It announced that it was going to pay out a billion dollars over the course of three years to creators on the platform. I think this was really like a kind of genesis moment for the industry and it spawned like tens of different creator funds across 
Facebook and Snap and then Pinterest and all of these other platforms started to do creator funds at different scales. I would just love to hear kind of some of the internal motivation. Like, why did you guys decide to do a creator fund in the first place? Was it engagement and retention? Was it new creator acquisition? Can you say more about the motivation for it? Yeah, absolutely. I think also I'll plug my former colleague, Reagan Fry here, who just did an interview on the genesis of the creator fund at TikTok, which was really great. So if you're really interested in this topic, he was the lead PM product manager on oh, that awesome. project. So I uh, really encourage folks to check that out. Which and, podcast know, can, is that on? We could share the link. Um, okay, we'll find the link the, and, and share it in the show notes. I think one of the great things about the TikTok creator fund was that in the same way that maybe folks had overlooked short form video until TikTok came around, there was this question around, well, how do you monetize short form video on the platform or in general? And so this was one of our first opportunities to try and bring something to the market that allowed us to explore what that looks like long term, because certainly it was new. No one had done it before. Right. And so I think on the one hand, what you described is great. It, it encouraged a lot of competition and innovation, right, which we hadn't had in this space. And I think since then, You've seen an explosion in other types of monetization, whether that's platform focused, whether that's brand deals, live streaming, e-commerce, memberships. I mean, the list goes on and on. You know, all the companies that are working on this problem. But one of the great things about the Creator Fund was this explosion almost that kind of came out after it, which is to say, hey, we got to figure this out because a short form video is a very attractive medium. People really love short form video. They love the opportunity to explore lots of different topics in a very short period of time. So we need to figure this out long-term for the industry. I think one of the things that I alluded to earlier was this intense product focus that TikTok has that has served the creator monetization vertical within TikTok to this day, which is this focus on experimentation. One of the things that you'll see from TikTok over the last few years is an opportunity for creators to try all different types of monetization. Right. There's the TikTok creator marketplace, which connects brands to creators on the platform. There is TikTok shop, which is e-commerce, which is, I think, testing in the US and the UK and some other markets. There's live gifting. There's also TikTok series, which is an opportunity for creators and their fans to build relationships on the basis of purchasing exclusive content, longer form video, which we just launched. So we'll continue to see lots of different types of ways to monetize on the platform from TikTok. And there is this interest in figuring out what are the best ways for creators to monetize the platform. And our sort of philosophy is let's give anyone an opportunity to do this in all sorts of different ways. So I think regardless of what happens with all of the different ways to monetize on the platform, I would encourage creators to think for themselves and do what's best for their business. Today, there are so many different types of creators that didn't exist even just two or three years ago that no one solution is right for any creator. And it really depends on what you're offering as a creator and, and who you are, right? There are different ways for podcast creators to monetize versus beauty and makeup creators versus AR creators. And so I think I would encourage folks to look at ways that make sense for their business to make money. Just because a product is being launched or a platform is placing an emphasis on something doesn't mean that it's necessarily right for you. And so I would encourage folks to continue to think about ways that makes the best sense for their business in order to take advantage of what platforms are offering and not just follow the latest trend. Definitely. I think a lot of folks have remarked on how the TikTok Creator Fund isn't actually paying people all that much. Like for the vast majority of creators, the TikTok Creator Fund payouts are pretty minimal. It's not anything that you're going to survive off of. 
And I always felt like these people were kind of missing the point. Like to me, the major benefit of the Creator Fund program and the reason why it spawned so many copycats is it really moved the needle for creator perception of TikTok and creator perception of like these companies in the sense that it felt like this moment where, oh, TikTok cares about me. They want to pay me. They want to include me in who gets value from this platform. Do you feel like it had that kind of impact for the way that it's perceived? Was that one of the goals of the program as well as to like sort of influence broader perception of the platform? Yeah, I think one of the things that is interesting about the creator monetization in general is it kind of added an, an additional dimension to the social contract that you have between platforms and its users. So when you think about as a user, just using YouTube or TikTok or Instagram, there is this unwritten social contract, which is certainly the hot topic and the topic of deliberation in the US and Europe, which is around data, right? You provide me this amazing experience as a platform, whether that's posts from my friends or posts from people who are talking about things that I might find interesting, whatever, in exchange for data that they can serve up to advertisers in order to monetize their business. I mean, this is the fundamental business model of so many platforms that we take for granted to this day. And for creators, the social contract has been, well, you give me content distribution and I give you content. And certainly one of the successes that TikTok has had is it has allowed a lot of people to find audiences very quickly based on our interest graph, right? We're connecting people to different interests that they have or different interests we think they might have that they might not know yet. How many stories do you have of people who say, well, I'll use you as an example. I'm not a big skier, but I actually get a ton of ski TikTok content on my platform, especially on my account, especially during the, the winter. And it turns out I'm really interested in watching other people <laughs> ski. And I find that very interesting. It's one of the most amazing things about the brand and what TikTok offers is this ability for anyone to find an audience. I think what creator monetization programs can do is to start to introduce an additional level and an additional contract that creators are now negotiating with, which is how does this fit into the fundamentals of the business and how can I take advantage of it? And what I mean yeah. by the fundamentals of the business is the whole focus of the platform is to inspire creativity and bring joy, to allow anyone to express themselves on the platform and to discover content that brings them happiness and inspiration. The mission statement for lots of these companies is not, you know, we want to encourage, you know, we want creators to make money necessarily. Right. And so I think that's something that's really important that creators need to remember at the end of the day, which is. Again, going back to what I was saying earlier, which is you need to do what's right for you as a creator and what makes best sense for you as a business and to seek out opportunities that align to your business model. I think one of the things that's really important that's also overlooked sometimes is communication and commitments that platforms make to creators. Yes. One of the really big challenges we have as an industry that is so focused on technology is the ability for products to change so quickly. Yeah. When it comes to creator funds or creator monetization, you're dealing with people's lives. People want to make an investment and they want to attach themselves and their identities to different platforms. So one of the things that's really important from platforms or if you're a product, you're a startup founder that's looking to build out a specific type of creator monetization or creator loyalty is actually being able to stick to the roadmap and share that roadmap with your audience. Creators are extremely intelligent. They're power users. They pay attention to what you say. I think one really good example of this is I think Twitch puts out like 
extremely detailed blog posts like when they come out with new product launches because they know that there is that level of interest and enthusiasm for the platform. And to the extent that you can share as much as possible, you can share transparently and get ahead of the narrative around what you're building, the better. Yeah, completely. I've noticed that level of like creator sensitivity to product changes or business model changes just from following the industry. For example, whenever Patreon, the creator subscription platform, introduces a new pricing model or changes the way that it takes fees, even if it's actually creator friendly for the most part, there's always this huge wave of backlash and like vitriol, like the the anger is so intense. And I think it's because yeah, you're impacting someone's livelihood in such a direct way and in a way where it feels like the power imbalance is so vast where the creators really have no recourse to do anything about it. And so like to your point about creator trust, I think doing what you say you're going to do, keeping your promises, like sticking to your roadmap or building in public can be ways to, to build that trust. I think there are other examples though where product, changes need to happen or business models need to shift because of the competitive landscape. For instance, in the NFT space recently, turns out like all of the royalties on subsequent sales that had been paid to artists, like those were not being enforced at the protocol level. They were just sort of being enforced by marketplaces. And then once different marketplaces started undercutting each other and taking out the creator royalty payments, everyone sort of converged on optional creator royalties or 0% creator royalties. And I think this has eroded a ton of trust that creators had in specific marketplaces that had previously stood by the idea of royalties. And it's also maybe eroded trust that creators have towards crypto and NFTs in general. This has been on my mind lately. And yeah, I'm just curious if you have any thoughts on like when you're in such a position How do you rebuild that trust after making such a big decision that like really impacts people's earnings potential? I think one of the most important parts of this type of turnaround is, again, going back to communication and transparency. The more that you can embed principles of transparency and building in public to a certain extent within your company's philosophy, within your company's culture, that emanates directly outwards to the types of communications and products that you build. You'd be surprised at how much what a company can do on the outside is a direct result of the way that they run their business and the way that communications happen internally. And it's really impressive to see because I think there's a lot of companies that do this in a great way, and that's reflective of also the culture that they have. So one of the examples that I'll give you is recently LinkedIn has made a really big play around creators over the last two years. They hired like a head of creators. They built out like this whole creator team. They hired, they built this creator ambassador program. We're going to make them part of our brand. We're going to give them a voice and we're going to bring them to industry events. We're going to publicize them in the press and we're going to say, hey, LinkedIn is a platform for creators. And this was a way for LinkedIn to look at workplace creators and go, oh, this is the future of LinkedIn. People are going to spend more time on the platform. We need more thought leadership. There's not enough thought leadership from different types of industries and different types of backgrounds. And they've been building in public to some extent, showcasing this promise and introducing product changes, building these community programs, events, et cetera. So that's a model that you can also follow even when you lost trust with your audience. 
whoever you're building for. And I think one of the things that's also important is just the, the acknowledgement. I think this is what any kind of crisis response PR professional that you can yeah. spend a lot of money will tell you is to is to own up to what you've done and to show how you're going to win back that trust. Ultimately, we're humans. We're forgiving. We want companies to succeed. We want to be part of these business journeys and we all want to make a difference in the world. So I think you'll be surprised at the amount of people that will give you a second chance. But it's in the same way that how are you going to convince your loved one or your friend or a colleague if you've lost some of their trust that you're going to win it back? It's the same thing as a business, right? So I think a lot of those fundamentals that you think about when you think about building interpersonal trust go back to how you act as a platform. The second thing I'll say about this is similar to what I said earlier around making sure that there is intense alignment across different parts of your business in order to make sure that you're actually following through on those commitments. And so what right. I mean by that is making sure that when we're saying we're going to make product changes, those product changes are coming from the product team. It's not the PR team promising one thing and then the product team saying, hey, that's not part of our roadmap. Or it's the marketing team promising one thing, or it's the product team pushing something out without alignment from the PR and marketing teams and saying, hey, that's actually not part of our narrative. That's not what we're building. What is this experiment you guys launched in Brazil that doesn't have anything to do mm -hmm. with what we're doing as a product? So I think the advice that I can give to founders in the Web3 space or practitioners in the Web3 space is the same that you would get for any type of industry. The difference is that in the creator ecosystem that you're building in, the public criticism is louder and it's yeah. more readily accessible. So use that to your advantage. Reach out to the people who are your biggest detractors and understand what can I do to satisfy you? And even just that act, right? How many times have you ever gone in your life? Or if you think back to your high school or college and there's someone that you didn't like and one day one of you reached out to each other or you ran into each other at a party and you found out, oh, actually, we have so much more in common. We're able to kind of figure out that we can actually be friends or, or, or maybe we're not going to be friends, but we're not going to not like each other so much. It's the same thing kind of dealing with your customers or dealing with your users and remembering that kind of human philosophy is, is really, really important. And somehow people lose that and, and forget about it in our world of instant communication and lots of information flying around. It's easy to lose that human touch. Yeah, that's great advice. Talking not just to your most enthusiastic users, but talking to the detractors who are pissed off. Yeah, I can imagine that creating a lot of goodwill. I want to talk about kind of like Web3 a bit more and the frontiers of the creator economy. So I think Web3, which I've been investing in for 100% of my focus now for almost two years, it introduces so many new dynamics into the creator economy and for users in general. One of those ideas is the idea of being platformless, where creators are building their social graphs and their follower graphs in a platformless way because their social graphs and their follower relationships, they exist on chain. You can see who owns your NFTs based on on-chain information. You can tell what their Ethereum addresses are, and it's not dependent on any given platform. That's like a totally new dynamic that didn't exist in the Web2 creator economy, where if you wanted to reach your followers, you had to do it through the platform that you built them on. And so it becomes much easier for creators to be able to move to different applications and take their content, take their followers with them. And similarly for users, you can start on a new platform, like take all of your content with you. You can use any NFT marketplace, see all of your NFTs. And so, yeah, with that kind of lock-in missing in the Web3 world, 
I'm curious on your thoughts or advice to founders who are building in Web3 in this like kind of new paradigm with less like moats around it. What are some of the ways to keep creators on your product or keep them more loyal beyond just that kind of data-driven lock-in effect that hadn't existed before? I think the most important thing when you're building for creators is to understand what part of the creator journey you're inserting yourself into. And this is applicable regardless of what's happening in the industry or how business models are changing, because ultimately you go back to the same insight that lots of different founders and companies are working on, which is how do I make my user's life easier, right? Mm -hmm. How am I simplifying a common problem that lots of people have or a problem people don't know that actually exists and we're making their life a lot easier? I think a lot of the products that we take for granted today may seem really obvious now and why they're so popular, but all the things that they have in common in the most successful, especially consumer applications, what they have in common is they make things really easy right? I'll use some examples that we just spoke about today, right? But TikTok makes it really easy for you to just find new interesting content. And you can spend a lot of time just surfing the platform because it's so easy to find new content. How? You just scroll, right? You just scroll up. LinkedIn is doing this now with finding jobs or expanding your professional network. It's really easy nowadays to just go on there and search for a job. And, and you can find a job almost instantly that's based on your background. So I think for you know folks in the Web3 space, I would think about what part of the creator journey are you building for? Is it related to building community? Is it related to creativity? Is it related to monetization and figuring out ways that you can make creators' lives a lot easier? Because ultimately, at the end of the day, we don't have a lot of time and people are only going to remember one, max, two things about what you have to offer. So I think about the product offering that you have and making sure that that is as simple as possible and that it's explainable because ultimately the addressable market that you're trying to service needs to be somewhat big in order for these platforms of scale to reach maturity and, and to be viable businesses. And so if you're not able to explain your product to your mom, for example, I'll keep going back to my mom, but that's a really good way of understanding, am I building something that's useful? And am I building something that could have use for a lot of people? and you apply that to whatever aspect of the creator journey that you're applying it to, I think those fundamentals will not change regardless of whether we're in web two, whether we're in web three, web four, yeah. web five, whatever happens, the business problem that you're solving needs to be universal and you need to provide really easy solutions. I can't tell you how many websites or products I've downloaded or have tried in either the web three space or now this is happening with the AI space. And you look at it and you go, what are we really building here? And who is this for? And do I really need this in my life? Or is this just an app that I'm going to delete tomorrow? And so I would think about all of those aspects really deeply. And to be honest with yourself, because a lot of folks can spend time on, on things that don't actually make our lives easier. And ultimately, people just want to get time back in their life, right? Yeah. To do other things. So I think those are some kind of common principles that I think will stay the same regardless of whatever aspect of the internet we're in. I completely agree with that. I think the bar gets higher when moats get shallower in terms of the product experience that you're building for creators and how good the product inherently needs to be when you no longer just have that like data moat and data-driven lock-in. 
on your users. Like you just really need to compete on a feature and product level and create that kind of emotional buy-in almost where you're really solving for something in their lives. For the founders who are listening to this conversation, who are building for creators, I'm curious if you have any advice when it comes to organizational structure or team build out to serve creators? Like at what stage should they think about building out a creator marketing function? And what have you seen work well in terms of how those teams are organized? Do they have a product counterpart? Any tips for founders? I think one of the most interesting ways to organize your team, and this is biased because I'm in this marketing and communications field, is to think about the narratives that you're trying to land and organizing your teams to reflect those business opportunities. So what I mean by that is creating clear opportunities for teams to come together around shared business goals Mm -hmm. and then building out the appropriate functions based on those business goals that are aligned to a promise we want to build in the market, right? Which is, let's say I'm building a platform that's going to make it really easy for anyone to become a gaming creator and to make money on the platform and to discover kind of gaming content. You could see how based on the narratives we want to share in the market, we would build out maybe like a kind of discovery and content team. Maybe there's a team focused on revenue and creator monetization. And then maybe there's a team focused on creativity tools, creator tools that make it easier for folks to come onto the platform and create content or share videos, articles, whatever. And I think making sure you have counterparts across the organization to keep people in check is really important. And then also fundamentally, companies will have different bents. So if you think about what type of service you're offering, there might be an opportunity for you to provide sort of more power to that team internally, right? Make sure that you have some arm of your business that is responsible and really connected to the marketplace, whether that's a go-to-market team, whether that's ex-researchers, whether that's maybe there's a community management aspect, you have to deal with certain VIPs or certain segments of the population. It could be really important for you to have that discipline And then the idea there is also to start small. Let's say you think you need uh, kind of more activations in the marketing space and you say, hey, we're going to build out kind of creator marketing. You can add that kind of responsibility to someone's role who is adjacent to that. Maybe there's a kind of marketing generalist. You build out programs, experiment. You need to hire a whole department overnight and then start to build teams in really smart and deliberate ways. I think that's also something that you're going to see now in this new world of high interest rates and high, bigger focus on yeah, yeah. the, the, the myth of efficiency. Year of efficiency. Yes. Yeah, yeah. The year of efficiency is a deliberate focus on why do we need this headcount? What is this headcount going to do? And there's lots of ways for you to do the work and prove the need for hiring without just writing a job description. You go, hey, this person's already doing this job. Mm-hmm. We know that this is already working. So there's lots of ways for you to de-risk that instead of pulling teams up that then disappear overnight. That's super helpful. Okay. I know we can talk for hours and hours, but I have one last question for you, Paul, which is what do you think people... After this, I'm not answering any more questions. There's no more questions again. after this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to really make it count. What do you think people get wrong about the creator economy? Wow. I'm going to need a second to think about that one. This wasn't on my list of pre-approved questions. Wow. I really stumped you on this one. Yeah. Okay. I think I have one. I think the biggest misconception about the creator economy 
is still the one that has been around for a long time, which is that when we're talking about creators, we're simply referring to influencers. And, and there's this kind of concept, you know, influencer kind of became a dirty word at some point. There's this concept of this like creator, almost in the sort of like Jake Paul, sensationalist YouTube thumbnail, circa 2016, 2017 creator that became really popular and has painted a broad picture of, of what the creator economy is. And that word actually didn't exist. I don't, I don't know when creator economy formally entered the mainstream, but certainly that's not how we were thinking about it when we were at, at YouTube. I think what we'll see in the future is this specialization that is already starting to happen for enabling different types of creators and, and reinventing what that definition is, which is really just creative entrepreneurs. We've in some ways branded an entire segment of the population that has existed since the beginning of time. What would we call, without getting too philosophical, what would we call like Socrates or Michelangelo today? <laughs> I guess they're creators, but if you said that about them now, you'd be like, they're well, definitely they don't freelancers. Make... Yeah. Yeah. Well, they don't make vlogs. So I think it's a really wide term that is used to kind of brush over large, very different parts of the industry. You can look at two different types of creators and you can say, well, what do they have in common? What does a education and like a course, someone who's making courses creator have in common with, let's say, Jake Paul, right? You're like, all right, well, they're both human and they're both expressing themselves creatively through some kind of medium on the biggest distribution channel of our time, which is the internet. So I think what we'll start to see over a very long period of time is continued specialization or different types of creativity, different types of creators. So I hope that that perception over time matures and there is more kind of seriousness added to it because I think it's still in some instances overlooked. Yeah, agreed with that. And it totally annoys me also to see headlines that proclaim the death of the creator economy or the demise of the creator economy. It's like, no, everyone's a creator. And so what does this even mean? But yes, I completely agree with you. I really think of creators being across all verticals, all industries, not just people who are making lip syncing videos. Anyways, Paul, it was so great to chat with you today. Thanks so much for taking the time. If folks want to follow your thinking or reach out to you, how do they get in touch or how do they follow you? You can add me on, on TikTok at Pistol Paul, or if you'd like to connect professionally, you can certainly connect with me on, on LinkedIn and happy to pick up any conversation topic with anyone through there. Excellent. Well, thanks so much. And yeah, we'll talk to you later. Although I guess that was my last question forever. I'll think about it. <laughs>